When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Friday Buckeye Talk. Cleveland.com, Douglas Reese, Nathan Baird, or Rapid Fire. We did two days of draft prep, the last two podcasts. But Nathan, we have some really good questions still kind of lingering from spring football. So our loyal and smart tech subscribers, we're going to lean back on them. And we're going to start with this, and I know that if you guys read the headline of this podcast, it might seem uh, controversial, but it's a real question. I thought it was an interesting way uh, to look at things a little bit. From the 253, I think I am overthinking this, but is anyone concerned that the offense is almost too overhyped? And I will say, Nathan, I think I remember, and you're speaking for all of us, I think you, I remember you on a recent podcast saying, they might have the best quarterback in the country. They might have the best receiver in the country. They might have the best running back in the country, which is not a controversial statement. One of the two best quarterbacks, but maybe the best receiver, maybe the best running back. I kind of know where the texture is coming from, Nathan, just from the standpoint of it seems like it's so good. Sometimes you need to pull yourself back from the edge, right? Yes, I think it's fair. I mean, listen. Great offense last season, but you're losing two first-round NFL receivers. And yes, Jackson Pinterjigba is back, but still, Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave are who we thought they were. You're losing a proven starting tight end without a proven starting tight end of the same caliber ready to step in, let alone two. You're losing a, you know, probably day two tackle and another multi-year start on the offensive line. Like you're losing enough that it's worth asking, is it, should we be talking about this as if it's a sure thing? Because that's, I think, where they're coming from on this overhyped question. Because there's another point on the podcast earlier this week where our, we were talking about something and I said, um, what will probably be the best offense in the country or, or something like that. And you quickly chimed in like, I think it's pretty safe to say this will be the best offense in the country. Yes. So I think that's where the overhype comes in. Where if, if we're already saying for sure, oh, well, I mean, clearly this is as good as it gets in college football in 2022 as far as moving the football. That, that it's, it's legitimate to push back to that. I don't think anyone's saying that, well, maybe this offense won't be good. I think it's, it's worth asking, are we sure this offense is going to come in and just lay waste? 
Yes. How good? I mean, because when you look at the the ratings, I'm looking at a F plus ratings from football outsiders, which again, is just a little more advanced metric for measuring this kind of stuff than total yards or total points, but they do it for offense and defense and Ohio state. I'm not going to pretend I understand all of this, but Ohio state was number one in the nation in offense last year. Their ranking was 2.80. Alabama was second at 2.06. Georgia was third at 2.01. Oklahoma was fourth at 1.61. So like, for instance, there, the gap between Alabama at two and Oklahoma at four is 0.45. And the gap between Alabama at two and Ohio State at one is 0.74. So Ohio State in that metric, was the best offense in the country by a wide margin. That's what we're talking about. And they are returning the quarterback, the play caller, the running back, and some pieces on the offensive line, as well as the guy who wound up being the leading receiver. So I I want to break this down by three ways, because I think there are three recent comparisons that I want to say, could this be in play at Ohio State? And I'll start at receiver and the comparison that I will make at receiver. Now it's a little more difficult because Jackson Smith and Jigba is back. This is really more about Marvin Harrison, Jr. Julian Fleming and Emeka Buka. And it's the chase young scenario where at some point your position is so good and so good. It gets better and better and better and better. And you think it might get better forever, but at some point it's almost as good as it can be. And I did kind of think, well, chase young is sort of the peak the final evolution of Ohio State defensive ends. And then when he left, they weren't as good. And it mattered. They were still good, but they weren't as good. It's, is it possible that last year, Wilson, Olave, Jackson, Smith, and Jigba is the peak evolution of a receiving core? And though Marvin Harrison Jr. and Julian Fleming and Emeka Egbuka, led by Jackson, Smith, and Jigba, will be good this year, they won't be as good, and it will matter. Yeah, of course that's that's in play. I would actually say the peak for Ohio State as far as its defensive line was probably 2018, where you had Nick Bosa and Chase Young both at defensive end, not just one of them. Mm-hmm. Although Young, as him, uh, Young unto himself was the single best version of that. So they got to experience at receiver last year what they didn't get to experience at defensive end in 2018 because of Bosa's injury. So I think that's definitely possible, but it's also that standard was so high where you could have two first round receivers, clear first round receivers in what is a strong receiver class. And then Jackson Smith and Jigba actually outproducing both of them. That standard now is so high that even when you fall short of that in subsequent years, you can have incredible years. Mm -hmm. That, you don't have to be as good as the top three guys were last year to be great. So I don't think it's fair for us to put that on Marvin Harrison, Jr. And Emeka Egbuka and Julian Fleming to live up to that or whatever. I don't think anybody is doing that, but there is a threshold of if part of your success is incumbent on, well, as long as our receivers are that good, it's like, okay, they're probably not going to be quite that good. Are you still going to be great as a group? So I do think that's worth bringing up. The second thing to me is the J.K. Dobbins comparison for Travion Henderson, which is tremendous freshman year. And then for whatever reason, as a sophomore, you get in your own head a little bit. You have a couple changes on the offensive line. And suddenly 
you're not seeing the holes. Suddenly you're not being as rugged and as physical as you need to be because you're trying to hit too many home runs. We've already heard Trevion Henderson talk about this. He's preemptively saying, hey, and Tony Alford is, hey, I can't live in a home run world. I've got to bang out some singles here and there. He's very aware of that. But we have a very visible example, Nathan, in recent Ohio State history where a running back was spectacular as a freshman and took a little bit of a step back as a sophomore before he was awesome again as a junior. So I'm not anticipating that with Trevion Henderson, but it's not a guarantee that his ascent will be straight. It could, there, you know, there could be a bump. When I was putting down, I basically had three questions that I think are fair to ask about this offense at this point. One of them is, two of them we've talked about ad nauseum. Tight ends, which I already mentioned, and offensive line depth. Like We've talked about those, I think, pretty significantly. And I think it's, it's also fair to question whether or not what they have at tight end really holds this offense back. That if it's, it's more about, like, presenting the tight end and, 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 and trusting that position more than it is getting production out of that position. But the third thing is Trevion Henderson. And, and actually for me, it, the J.K. Dobbins comparison doesn't completely work because there were external forces placed onto J.K. Dobbins that then affected his mindset for that season, I think is a fair way to say that, right? The way Ohio State decided to split up carries in the backfield, the way it decided to use its backfield affected J.K. Dobbins. I don't see that being an issue for Trayvon Henderson. I do think, unfairly or not, he does have some durability things to answer this year. Last year, he there were some games where they didn't necessarily need to push it with him, so they were always willing to, to take him out, but there were just so many games where it seemed like he was coming out and going back in and coming out and going back in. I do think uh, that's maybe the one thing that I wonder about with him, and if as much as Evan Pryor looked good in the spring game as much as we've talked about Mayan Williams being a solid guy that if you had had to go without Trevin Henderson for an extended period of time against the wrong opponent, does it throw your balance off to make you more vulnerable? So I, I would, that's maybe the one thing that still lingers in the back of my mind is what if Trevin Henderson just has trouble staying on the field for a full season? He will not face the issue of, Hey, I'm having to split carries, right? That's that will not be an issue that was worth bringing up. So the third one is the one that I think is the least possible, but we'll bring it up. Spencer Rattler entered last season as the Heisman favorite and had a terrible year. Did not look like the same quarterback from the year before. Was a five-star guy, seemed on the ascent, and then took a step back. He has since said since his transfer to South Carolina from Oklahoma, he called the situation at Oklahoma toxic last year, whatever that means. I think he certainly contributed to that. I think the fact that the head coach wound up leaving at the end of the year probably contributed to that. I think all coaches say is have your feet where your head is. And then a coach does something like that. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You too, bro. So I get that. I don't think any of that stuff is in play here, but again, it's just, if we're going to have this discussion, if a texter is going to say, I'm probably overthinking it, but if you're going to entertain the, butt, Buckeye talk, then this is where you have to go. We're not saying we believe it, but that's what it would look like because I do I do not think this anymore. I thought it at times early last year with C.J. Stroud. How much is he a product of his receivers? And that's not where my head's at. I think his products are a receiver of him. or His receivers are a product of him. He's a product of his receivers. They work in concert. Ryan Day brings out the best in C.J. Stroud. C.J. Stroud brings out the best in Ryan Day. 
But you lose Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. You got to see. Teams adjust to you a little bit. Maybe you feel some kind of thing as you're coming in as a Heisman favorite. You're not this under the radar guy. You have all this. I don't know. Again, we talked we talked to Austin Gale. He loves CJ Stroud. He said, you know, the accuracy can still get a little bit better at that. He's not the world's greatest athlete. We talk a lot about how smart he is. I'm not on alert for this, Nathan, but 5%. Okay, let's double check what any quarterback looks like when you lose Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson. I, I think that's not unreasonable to do. And by the way, the Heisman favorite a year ago had a clunker of a season. So it's a little more at the forefront. And I would say the same thing about Bryce Young. I would say the same thing about Caleb. Well, I would say it about any quarterback in the country. This is not, and actually I think CJ is less likely to have this happen to him because he's humble, because he's grounded, because he's so smart, because he's so focused. All those things would say, well, not him, which I would say, but if we're going to do the, but, that's where the quarterback butt is. Again, I think that's fair, especially just because of what we've seen in college football. You know, we can go back to 2019 even, where Trevor Lawrence came into that season with a ton of hype and then kind of stumbled out of the gate and just threw some interceptions early that were very out of character and uh, probably like got him completely written off of like the Heisman chase that year. And meanwhile, he ends up going to the national championship game. So I agree with you that I'm not that worried about it with Stroud simply because of his makeup, a guy that I think is going to spend a semi-insane amount of the offseason watching film and and working and trying to get better. I mean, that's just seems like what he's driven to do that. It's it, he almost I wrote about it. He talked to us about it like he almost can't shut that off. Like it's it's just in part of his his body, part of his mind. The one thing is, though, and Austin Gale brought this up, and I thought it was maybe one of the, the flaws in how he saw Stroud, and it's one of those things that maybe because we we're closer to it, that the, the inaccuracies that we saw were very influenced by the injury. And he was a very different quarterback once he came back and had a healthy shoulder. But that tells yes. you if, if something goes awry with the throwing shoulder of C.J. Stroud, he isn't as multidimensional as, say, Justin Fields was, and that's potentially an issue. But anybody's anytime your star player is playing with some kind of injury, it's going to compromise your chances to win. So I don't think that's exactly breaking news or, or hard hitting analysis. So I do think in a world when you talk about too overhyped, we've talked about depth on the offensive line. We've talked about tight end. Those are just concerns for the offense. If they're too overhyped, it's that the guys you think are going to be great aren't quite as great as you think. So I do think it centers on what we think is this elite group of skill guys led by a quarterback that's a Heisman candidate. And it's worth noting. I thought I wanted to lead off the podcast with that, not to be a negative Nelly, but to spin our perceptions. It's always good, Nathan, to double check on your perceptions. And I think you and Steven and I, and I think almost everybody who covers this team, I would assume the people on the team, the people listening to this podcast, you're kind of all in with the offense. What would you not be all in about? Any team in the country would take Trevion, Jackson, CJ, and say, and then give me eight other dudes and let's go. But I feel good about it no matter what. You know, check yourself before you wreck yourself. I think it's, it's a valuable thing. But I think in checking, you say, no, I, I think we're good with the hype. I don't, I don't think we have decided, yes, let's pull back 
because J.K. Dobbins had a wonky sophomore year. Or let's pull back because Spencer Rattler had a wonky season last year. I don't, I don't think those things lead us to question the Buckeyes. Yeah, I think when you check yourself here, you can reconsider how whether you think the ceiling is like, you know, all-time great, I suppose. But I think it reaffirms that the floor is very high. Yes, I think that's a good way of saying it. All right, this is a little bit tied into that. This is from the 614. This might be blasphemy, but I was really unimpressed with the young receivers in the spring game. Jackson Smith and Jigben, Marvin Harrison Jr. will be great. McBuka looked clunky compared to his flashes last year, and Jaden Ballard is not ready for primetime. Also, I have little confidence that Fleming will be both healthy and reliable. My impression is great athlete, injury-prone, mediocre technician. The future is bright in that room, no doubt, but the transition may not be as smooth as predicted. Um, and then he was asking, could we see Evan Pryor in a Curtis Samuel Paris Campbell role, which I don't see. Listen, because those are actually two very different roles. You don't want a Curtis Samuel role. The Curtis Samuel role is I am simultaneously the best receiver and best running back on this team because we're short. You don't want that. That's what happens at Wake Forest or, you know, Boise State. Where it's like, hey, we, this, we have this extreme guy. He's simultaneously the best at both positions that should not happen at Ohio state. So don't wish for that. I don't think that's going to happen, but let's talk about it's we, we touched on this a little bit before. It's interesting. That person said, I'm worried about the young receivers, but then he counted Marvin Harrison jr. Who is one of the young receivers as a sure thing. I get the questions about Julian Fleming. I think it is. How, how do you say like, I don't think it's unfair to question him, but I don't think I also think it is a little unfair to him to be critical of him because it's mostly been injuries that have been holding him back. And like, that's just not, and we love to talk about the Marshawn Lattimore plan. Again, who's on the list of two years of held back by injuries, ready to pop in year three, my goodness, like you'd put Julian Fleming right at the top of that list on this team. So I think that's very real, but I know I get it. I get and again, to say, hey, and that guy Buka looked great in the Rose Bowl. How come he wasn't better in the spring game? You don't want to go too far with that. But I, had, I, I have some understanding of where the texture's coming from. I'll say the same thing about Fleming that I've been saying a lot, which is I don't have any question about him as a football player. But Garrett Wilson flashed very early in his freshman year. And he got a lot of reps in his freshman year. He was a rotational receiver from the start of his freshman year. Jackson's been the Jigba with the toe tap against Nebraska flashes something very early as a receiver. Um, Marvin Harrison, I thought was flashing things. Emeka Buka last year flashed things as a receiver very early in their careers. And Julian Fleming still has not really flashed as a receiver, partially because of what you're talking about with the injuries. But when there have been opportunities, I don't know that I've seen the special thing that they insist is happening behind the scenes with Julian Fleming. So um, I, it's, it's his third year. Like it's, it's not, it's not nitpicking anymore to say, well, this receiver is doing it. This receiver is doing it. This receiver is doing it. And this receiver, we haven't seen it yet. I think that's all anybody is saying with Julian Fleming. So that's maybe the most disappointing thing about the spring game was that seemed like an opportunity for him to get to flash that. And once again, to be held back by injury at some point, it's not a it's not a criticism of him anyway. He's just got to get on the field and make plays, as everybody does. And and now before there was always the built-in excuse of well, there's three first-round receivers ahead of him, and now there is not that gate closed to him that he should be on the field this fall making plays. And if he doesn't get on the field this fall and make plays, 
that's, I think, maybe the first time where you start to look at it and say, okay, now it, it starts to be on him a little bit. Yeah, it's go time. It's go time, but he might go. And then the other thing is, again, it's the Ohio State standard of, hey, I'm a little worried about this receivers. I believe in Jackson Smith and Jigba and Marvin Harrison Jr., who are probably both future first-round picks, but what about everybody else? And it's like, well, what if it's only those two guys? That's still pretty good. Play a bunch of 12, plays those two, you're good to go. What else do you need? The idea that is Jaden Ballard not ready yet, I think maybe that's true. And as we've talked on here, they actually, they actually kind of feel like they're one receiver short right now. So if you think, okay, Ekbuka's still on, there's, I think there's plenty of reasons to believe in Ekbuka. He's only a second-year guy. So if those are your top three, and then Julian Fleming, but say Julian Fleming just doesn't quite work out, and Ballard's not quite ready, and then yeah. somebody gets abducted by aliens, then again. But that's three things. It's like, oh, three things happen. Are you worried? It's like, well, okay, I mean, yes, but go ask Clemson how they feel. They might have half a thing happen and they'd be in trouble. So, yeah, there is still volatility in that room both ways, but the volatility could mean that it gets pushed even higher than we're expecting. Because if Julian Fleming is healthy this fall and hits, and now you got something, and if Emek Book is coming along, you know, they talk about. They're talking about Jaden Ballard as something that's coming, not something that's here, which is an important distinction. Like, oh, he's starting to show it. Like, maybe it's here. They talk about Cam Babb. Like, you guys wouldn't believe how good he actually is if you could ever actually see him play. But will that ever happen? Like, there's a lot of things that if they happen, just even in chunks of the season, could make this receiver core better. But there are also things, like you say, if none of them happen, maybe we do have to pull back a little bit on what we expect from the full core. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay, so we just started off with some questions about the offense, which is not normally something we do here on Buckeye Talk. We'll come back another eight rapid-fire questions ahead after this. Doug and Nathan, you can ask us questions like this by being a tech subscriber at 614-350-3315. You can go listen to Nathan, his debut on the College Football Survivor Show. We did a wrap-up of spring games from last Saturday. Nathan came on with me and talked about Ohio State. We also talked about Alabama, Georgia. Uh, who else? Who else did we talk about? Michigan State. Talked about them. And uh, somebody else. I can't remember who it is. I feel like that feels like insulting to me. Oh, Miami. Miami. Miami was interesting. I was curious to talk about Miami. So that's on the College Football Survivor Show, the free show this week. We're continuing to wrap up spring. I have nine people lined up for next week because this coming Saturday, the 23rd, is kind of the last group of spring games. It's a bunch of Big 12 games, a bunch of Pac-12 games, Penn State, Notre Dame. They'll be on the College Football Survivor Show next week. We're trying to go around the country and check with a lot of people. So Nathan and I were on there talking about Ohio State. Uh, All right, let's get to this next question. This is defensive and optimistic. From the 614, it feels like the JTT era is about ready to pop. The simmer is about to boil. It feels like Garen Wilson going into the second season that, that he's like this, right? It's a five. It's the five star that feels special, but feels this special, right? Hey, they're used to five stars here, but a whole mama, they might be onto something. What say you Buckeye talk, Nathan, what do you think about this idea of JT to Malowau ready to go? Well, I imagine that's pretty refreshing for Ohio State fans because I think it's been a little while since they've t- done that on defense. I think you've done it on offense in the last 
few years. I mean, you know, Jackson's been through check, but going into his second season, there was optimism. And Wilson's a good example. Or Trevor Henderson, now that he's going into his second season. And the quarterbacks, as they were going into their second season. Like, I, I think there was some of that optimism there. But it's been a while since people really felt it on defense. And I think that's an important development for Ohio State. I think we've been driving that JTT. Can we still call him that? We're not supposed to call I him guess it's just. I guess it's just JT. Okay. We've been driving the, the, the JT hype uh, as much as anyone, I think, this spring. And it's starting to feel like I could see a scenario where in crunch time late this season, where he is the anchor on one side of this defensive line, and then Jim Knowles kind of has his fun on the other side. Whether that means you're still doing a conventional um, stance there with your other defensive end, whether it's Zach Harrison or Jack Sawyer, whether that means you're – doing the jack on that side. Boy, I almost said jack around. There is no way to use that as a verb that sounds like uh-huh. anything we should repeat ever again. So uh, utilizing the jack position on that side, boy, that doesn't even sound good. Um, you know what I'm saying, though, that he becomes like this, this stabilizing force on that defensive line. I thought we saw a little bit. There was those back-to-back plays in the spring game where the one where he kind of comes across the line and takes down Evan Pryor and just smothers him for no gain, and then gets a sack on the next play. And you're like, if he can do that sort of thing, if he can be both of those entities for Ohio State consistently this year, it really raises the play of that whole defensive unit potentially. Because I think that that ripple effect passes through. They need more pass rush. They need more consistency stopping the run. And that's one individual stepping up and saying, I can be better at both of those things than I was last year. They need multiple guys to do that. But his ceiling is obviously pretty high. JT was not as productive as a true freshman as Joey Bosa, but that is a little bit of the template that I think about with him, that Joey Bosa as a true freshman, he gets a chance to play a little more than expected. And they're like, Oh no, this guy, he's got to play. So he winds up being a starting defensive end as a true freshman. Joey Bosa had 13 and a half tackles for loss and seven and a half sacks in 2013 as a true freshman. Then in 2014, he's an all American He's a driving force on a national championship team. He is the beginning of this new era of Ohio State edge rushers, and he's starting to propel himself into the top five of the NFL draft. And in year two, he goes from 13 and a half tackles for loss to 21 and a half. He goes from seven and a half sacks to 13 and a half sacks. So JT last year had three and a half sacks, only four and a half tackles for loss. Not the same. Did not have the same kind of role that Joey Bosa did as a freshman, but He showed more and more and more as you went along. And the idea that you go from, boy, is that guy a good young player to that guy is an All-American and I think he's going to be a top 15 NFL draft pick. I think we all think that's possible. And that's the Garrett Wilson comparison. That's the Joey Bosa comparison. I think that might be there. And frankly, it's the Jackson Smith and Jigba comparison. That might be the best compare that he's, I think, JT, as a true freshman, did a little more than Jackson did, opportunity, and did a little less than Joey did, opportunity. So somewhere in the middle of what a true freshman season looks like for a five-star who is about to become something, I don't know what would hold you back because, again, the way he handled his business, the way he gets down to it, the, the I think the humble nature of of the way he goes about things, of his family background, of how pragmatic and smart they were about the recruiting process, how ready he was when he got here late. There's just all this, not even breadcrumbs. It's like whole pieces of bread 
It's like you get like a whole bag of bread and then you just walk along and it's not crumbs because sometimes crumbs, you can't find them in the grass. A whole piece of bread. I mean, if I saw a whole piece of bread on the ground, I would be, I would eat it. I love bread. If you saw a piece of bread on the ground that didn't have that much dirt on it, would you eat it? Like just a piece of Wonder Bread? Yeah, like bread's no. so good. Oh my God, bread is so good. Like yeah, all but, these... the, but bread is plentiful and I can go b- get unsoiled bread at any number of sources. I can go to a gas station and get unsoiled bread. Why am I eating it off the ground? But what if you're like in the middle of a field and it's like there wasn't a gas station around and it's either this slightly soiled bread or no bread. I'll take slightly soiled bread over no bread any day. I don't know how people do the diets where it's like, it's just no bread. It's no bread. I think bread's my favorite food. People are always like, what's your favorite food? Honestly, people are like, oh, I love pizza. I like lobster. It's like, you know what you love? You love bread. Underrated. Never gets talked about. Completely overlooked. But do you eat bread every day? I eat bread every day. Uh, I typically have a sandwich for lunch, yeah. Yeah. How good's that bread? How good is it? Is it good? Yeah, because it hasn't been laying out in the yard. It comes out of a nice, clean bag. I don't, I don't want it from the yard. I'm just saying if it has to be from the yard. So anyway, so it's not the what, what foods would you not like? Is it just bread that is so good that you would eat it if it was just laying in a field or like how many foods should we do a bracket of foods that you would eat if you just encountered them laying on in the in a field? Because I think because as much as I'm, I'm praising bread, like the upside of bread, there's, you know, a piece of bread. There's only so great it can be. It's not like pizza. Oh, my gosh, this pizza is the greatest pizza ever. And then if it's if there's dirt in the cheese. There's like a bug in the pepperoni. It's like that really brings it down. Bread is what it is. Bread doesn't pull any punches. Bread does not put on airs. Bread is bread. So bread with a little dirt is pretty close to what it is anyway. So if you're JT, so the bread crumbs, they get hidden, you can't see them. Giant pieces of bread leading you to this guy is about to do something. Because this is the path. Again, as much as I like it, I like the Marshawn Lattimore conversation we've created, but I almost like would be happy to name, we almost should do that. The six paths to Ohio State stardom, right? That's that's use, how can it go? Well, it can be like this. You can come, come in in year one and you go crazy immediately. That's the, that's the Orlando Pace path. Come in, you're good, you're good. Year one, you're good. And then you pop in year two. That's the Joey Bosa, Jackson Smith and Jigba path. Right. Oh, you battle injuries for a couple of years. And then and really it is about year three, because most of the things, if you don't pop by year three, you start questioning, is it going to happen? So it's almost the path to third year stardom at Ohio State. What can it be? So this he's on that Joey Bosa, Jackson Smith and Jigba track. And just what we're saying, Nathan, from a talent standpoint, from an opportunity standpoint, which are the two biggest things, talent and opportunity, but then just all the peripheral stuff which is handle your business. It just seems like he checks every box, which is why I think everybody, this, this texture is not alone with this thinking. Yeah. Obviously the thing missing from your Joey Bosa comparison is that Joey Bosa didn't show up at the end of July or whatever and start playing pretty quickly. Absolutely. So that's the other thing that throws off. Yes. The, yes, the, 
production was different, but so were the circumstances pretty significantly. Yeah. Okay. This one, I, I really like this question. I've, I've done things with this a lot over the years. From the 330, can you do a ranking or draft with the current players? And we're, we're actually working on something with that. We also did the spring game draft, which gave you guys a decent indication of that. But what Andrew from the 330 was saying is basically at this moment, who is the best player in a vacuum at what they are asked to do? He wants us to do one through 44. Let's start with one. Because it's not value, right? Quarterback's more important than right guard. I love who does their job the best. And there was a time when Ohio State had a gazillion, 2015 is when I think I wrote it, that I thought Cam Johnston, the punter, did his job as well as anybody on that team did their job. What's a punter supposed to do? Well, that, that, guy, does, that guy does it. He can pin people back. He can kick you in a corner on the sideline. He can give you hang time. If you really need to flip the field, he'll flip the field for you. You could not have asked any more from a punter than what Cam Johnston at his best gave to Ohio State. I think I, I, I have a headline out there to that effect. Does that mean he's the most valuable player? No. Is he going to be drafted higher than Joey Boston and Ezekiel Elliott? No. But do your jobness. I love that kind of way of thinking about especially football players because the jobs are so different who's your answer to this nathan baird well even with that caveat that you can go through the whole roster i still think what makes ohio state the most intriguing for 2022 is those answers are probably still at critical positions i think if you're going just by pure football player it might be jackson smith and jigba if you're giving the caveat of the degree of difficulty that quarterbacks have to work on every snap then it's cj stroud but i think it's one of those two is my number one i think it's jackson because i think reliability explosion yards after the catch guy you believe in and third down everything you want a slot receiver in particular to be and if they moved him outside and asked him to do take more routes down the field i'm sure he could do that too but particularly slot receiver, everything you want a slot receiver to be, I think he is. I don't know that there's anything that you would say, we need more of this guy in that area. Uh, CJ is a great answer as well. You know, would you add a scooch more athleticism as a scrambler to get out of the pocket and do something with his legs if we're having this kind of conversation, right? Yep. Maybe. I don't know, and I think there's less upside here but do your jobness. I do think Ronnie Hickman enters the conversation at mm -hmm. some point, except it also feels like his job is slightly changing this year with, if he's going to be more of the adjuster, the deep safety. But if Jim Knowles likes him there, why, why would Jim Knowles like him there? Because he does his job. Cause you know, who would be high on the do your job list? Jordan Fuller in 2019, who would have, if that's run through that great defense, Chase Young and Jeff Okuda and Justin Fields on offense and everybody else run through that JK Dobbins, Chris Olave run through that team. And if we were having this conversation in 2019, Nathan, we'd be saying things like, well, you know, all those guys, but I think Jordan Fuller belongs high on this list. And I think they see Ronnie Hickman as a Jordan Fuller type. So I think those three guys are up there. I think Denzel Burke's in the conversation. Then again, Michigan game did Denzel Burke have his best game. He's still young. He's mostly, I think, a cover corner at this point. Very good player. But, and I don't think a lot of times it's fun when you throw in like a punter or an offensive lineman. This is one of those where 
if we were having this conversation a couple of years ago and you're making a case for Josh Myers, you're making a case for Wyatt Davis. I don't know that we have anybody on the offensive line right now who would rise to the level of let's throw them in the conversation with Jackson Smith and Jigba and CJ Stroud. No, uh, because especially with Paris Johnson switching jobs um, and guys like, you know, uh, Whipler, I mean, it's just, there, there are a bunch of guys who are doing their job fine, but who need to just take a step this year. I think is maybe yeah. the best way to, to say it. I also think on the defensive side of the ball this year, if it goes the way it's trending, if, if things we saw this spring, if the optimism of the spring carries into the season and, it, and it's real, then I think it's going to be sort of a case study in how much the guy next to you doing his job makes it easier for you to do your job and, and, and enhances the kind of the, the ripple effect of the confidence through that whole unit. Because I think the opposite thing definitely happened last year where there was less confidence, whether that was performance or whether that was the way that they were lined up and, and schemed up and, and players maybe didn't have confidence that that was working, but I, they, it seems to be going the other way that people are believing in Jim Knowles. They want to, once they start to see the results of his defense, then that's going to, that confidence can build. And that, that certainty that you trust the guy next to you is going to build too. All right. This is a little bit of a recruiting question. Question five here from the four one nine. I would be interested to hear Ryan day. Talk about this. Ryan had a little bit of a struggle in his initial recruiting class as a head coach. How much of that experience has driven their propensity to attack areas in transitional years with new head coaches. And I think this person's talking about the podcast where we talked about some of the guys that Ohio state was grabbing out of Florida in a year where Mario Cristobal is in year one at Miami, Billy Napier's in year one at Florida. Mike Norvell hasn't gotten it going at Florida state. I thought it was interesting to think about Nathan, because if we just go back and look at the numbers, you would say, okay, well, there is a tr- little bit of a transition here from urban Mario to Ryan day where there's a slight dip. I do also think one of the things that factors in here, and I think maybe it applies less like to Miami, but maybe well, the Florida thing was kind of sudden too. I think the two things that happen is it's the new coach, but also if the new coach is taking over for an old coach who let it slip a little bit, you feel the effects of, hey, the last guy actually wasn't getting it done in a great way. And now I'm in here new, and now I've got to rebuild relationships and I'm kind of behind not just being new, but like we're not as good as we used to be. I think that can affect also when you go in transitionally. That did not happen, you know, with Urban Meyer and Ryan Day because Urban Meyer was pretty quick to Ryan Day. However, we remember, right, the Jackson Carmen recruitment offensive lineman of Ohio where he said, yeah, Dabo Sweeney came, you know, told me he didn't know how much longer Urban Meyer was going to be doing this. And it felt like that affected the Jackson Carmen recruitment. And at the time, everybody's like, oh, I can't believe Dabo would say that. He was right. So as much as we say, there wasn't like a drop-off in Ohio State recruiting at the end of Urban Meyer, there maybe were some rumblings, especially then once it's a controversial summer in 2018 and there's a suspension and now here comes Ryan Day. Um, I would be, I want to ask Ryan Day about this because I think there's an interesting answer just in the, how he would describe the transition and recruiting in a transition, but then also how does that affect your thinking He's not, they're not going to say publicly, yeah, year one, we're attacking you, but they do. <laughs> well, it, yes. Although I would say when Ohio State has attacked those vulnerabilities, 
it's not just about that transition, as you're saying. Usually the downslide is sort of sustained. Like USC had been trending down for a while, and that opened California up. And Texas had been sort of underwhelming for a while, which opens more of Texas up. And on top of all of that, Ohio State's backyard is pretty insulated. I know you bring up the Jackson Carmen example, but that's kind of the one, right? Like it's not, I mean, Drew Allar isn't an example because the circumstances were different. Um, It's Ohio is more insulated. Ohio state doesn't really have to worry about people coming in and raiding Ohio the way that if you are Florida or Miami or one of the Texas schools that when you dip, you've got three other powers in your state that are going to be taking advantage of that, not to mention all of the other national powers who have a presence in that state who are going to come pull guys out, who already are pulling guys out. I mean, it's 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 a dogfight down there. So that's where Ohio State is always in a better situation. I, I do think, though, to get him to give an honest answer about that sort of recruiting, and they've, they've sort of talked about it before, right, On, in at least – at least talking sideways about it, that like they, they, they see those vulnerabilities around the country and you go in and you, you pillage there for a little while and you move on to the next vulnerability. So I think it's almost that the, the coaching transitions happen there inevitably because they're attacking places where the downside has already started. I actually think, I think you might be on something here. I think we might have the cause and effect reversed. Yeah. That it's not that the transition causes a recruiting vulnerability. It's that because you had a recruiting vulnerability, you had a coaching transition. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. hey, let's attack a coach in year one is less about the coach. And the fact that you're there is a result of a circumstance that we have been and can continue to take advantage of until you get your feet under you. And for it to work. That's how it has to have happened. Almost, you already have to be embedded there and doing work and getting guys and laying the groundwork for it. Because if you wait until Clay Helton is fired and you go in there, well, they just hired well, Lincoln Riley. That you don't get to take advantage of it the same way you do if you're doing it in a sustained way over a couple of years. Well, but Lincoln Riley is an example, is an exception to the rule. Very few head coaches come in with as much established capital and flip it immediately because Ohio State. Well, listen, they they had. Texas coaches on staff, they did not have a gigantic foothold in Texas before they grabbed Baron Browning, J.K. Dobbins, and Jeff Okuda in the same class. They were not embedded in Texas. They just saw vulnerability and attacked because it was this transitional Charlie Strong, you know, kind of era coming off the end of Mac Brown, where Mac Brown clearly dipped at the end and left enough the next guy in a difficult circumstance. So I know what you're saying, but most of the time you're not bringing in Lincoln Riley, but, but the bottom line is they're everywhere. It's, it's again, they're, they're, I don't want to make, it's one of those things. You just, you can't say stupid stuff on podcasts and you do so many podcasts in a week. Inevitably you do. I'm, I'm not going to, I don't want to pretend it's like, I'm not going to make the comparison I was going to make, but it's a little dormant. You're there. You have relationships everywhere. And it's when do you, when do you come out? It's like the cicada, right? Mm-hmm. It's like every uh, say, Ooh, cicada, they bother me, right? That when do you come out? When do you come out of your cave? Because you're you, like you said, you can't not be there. But they were in Florida before this. They were there sure. checking in. But then right. they then they leaned in when there's weakness. 
I get not everybody is going to hire Lincoln Riley. You're right. But every power where the talent base shows that vulnerability when they fire that other coach is probably hiring someone, you know, Steve Sarkeesian's a name and, you know, bringing uh, Mario Cristobal to Miami is a name like that. You know, it's proven guys. So even if it's not Lincoln Riley, most programs, when they get to the point where they have to make that choice are probably bringing somebody in that isn't a nobody. Billy Napier is almost, I wouldn't, he's obviously not a nobody, but it's not like he has quite the cachet of some of these other guys that powers have brought in, but mostly they're bringing somebody in. They're probably overpaying. They're doing whatever. Cause they have a problem that has to be fixed. And one of the first things that guy is going to do is try to plug these leaks. So the thing, the way that I always think of it is when urban Meyer really leaned into the make the great state of Ohio proud slogan, when he got here and it's always like, that's what you say to kids in Ohio. And then in to kids in other state, you say, ignore your great state and come to right. us instead. So I just think, where are the programs where they're not making their great state proud? Where if you said, because when Urban Meyer said, make the great state of Ohio proud, like it hit because it was true. Kids in Ohio, more often than not, the best high school football players in Ohio want to play at Ohio State. So where is that not true? At USC, the past five years, it has not been making the great state of California proud. We all know that. If they were, they wouldn't have had the three best quarterback recruits in the country and Bryce Young, DJ Uyungle, and CJ Stroud and kept none of them home. So where is that not true? Now, why is that? Is it because it's slacked off under the old guy? Is it because the new guy hasn't gotten his footing yet? Is it because they're just in a rut of losing? Is it because they had scandal? I don't know what it is. But if you can't unfurl the make the great state of blank proud in your student section and have it make sense and not have people laugh at it, if you can't unfurl that with confidence, then Ohio State's coming to take your players. <laughs> like that's if they it's like the security system. You don't necessarily need a security system. You just have to have a sign in your yard that says you have a security system. So Ohio State's going around and say, oh, who doesn't have a sign? You don't have a sign. And then maybe if you try to unfurl the sign, but they're like, I'm not sure this is actually your security systems hooked up. They're going to steal your players. So if Ohio, now listen, you say, Hey, well, in Ohio, there was a time when people stole Ohio's players. Michigan stole a lot of Ohio players because that wasn't how it was. So just like with anything else, you're one, you're one bad hire, you're two bad recruiting cycles away from everything flipping. It just has been that way in Ohio for multiple decades now. I love these kind of conversations. Let's try this. From the 419, which players moved up and down the most this spring in terms of your expectations for their career? So this is deep that we looked at someone and heard about someone, mostly heard, we don't watch that much, for 14 practices, then we got to look at them in the spring game. And where did we most, you guys, can I give you a little secret here? When I ask the question, and then I restate the question six times in a slow, methodical voice, that's just giving us a chance to think. It's not like Nathan doesn't understand the premise of the question. Nathan, what they're saying is, and Ohio's, it's just think time, but you can't have silence. I guess we could turn the podcast off and then turn it back on and think for two minutes and then just come right back on and be like, well, I answered that question. I was ready right away with an answer. We're just thinking. Sorry. 
I have one guy that I don't know exactly if it fits here, but I will say Tommy Eichenberg. Because if I thought, if I just thought he's a little more situational, he's kind of the kind of guy who can be the defensive MVP against a team like Utah that's going to run it. But I don't know if he's really like a primary guy in this big crowded room. Man, oh man, the way they talked about him and played him, it's, it feels like to me he's not going to be their middle linebacker just against Wisconsin. It feels like he's going to lead this team in linebacker snaps this year because they believe in him on the field all the time, no matter what. Now, what does that mean for his career? Well, I don't know what it means for his career, but it feels like he's going to play a whole bunch for a time, a team that's trying to win a national title right now. And I don't know for sure in this crowded linebacker room, if I thought that would be the case. I think I would still expect steel chambers to lead in linebacker snaps as of today, just because he's probably more trusted on, passing downs and, and such like third downs and stuff. I, the other thing I'll say about Eichberg, I think he belongs on this list. The other thing I'll say about him and we're just kind of learning about Jim Knowles and, and obviously he's learning on the fly too about Ohio state's personnel. The way he talked about Josh Proctor as the spring went on was very dependent on how much he saw Josh Proctor play, which makes sense. Cause all he saw film last year, but it wasn't until he like got to see him like actually get into practice and then he could kind of sort of hit somebody and then he could do a little more contact. He still hasn't seen Cody Simon play. And there was a reason Cody Simon was playing over Tommy Eichenberg last year, even when he was hurt. So that's something I would just keep in my back pocket till the fall. That if Cody Simon is healthy, does he come back and, and challenge to retake that middle linebacker spot away from Eichenberg? But I think Eichenberg followed up a very positive end of the season by what he did in the Rose Bowl with sort of just just backing that up, just you know, giving the coaches more reason to have confidence in him. I'm going to throw this in here because this is a 20% similar question. Another guy that I want to mention maybe fits this. From the 808, it's Craig. My question is, after watching the spring game, which current second or third team player on defense will get to the starting lineup role first? What game will that be, and why do you favor that player? So I actually forgot that Craig was asking about defense. because I. So while we think about that, I did want to mention Joe Royer, that if it was like, I don't know what's happening to tight end, they don't have a bunch of highly rated tight ends, and then C.J. Stroud talk, talked up Joe Royer, and then he made a nice catch in the end zone in the spring game. And maybe he'll be closer to a version of Jeremy Rucker that we imagine that, yes, Cade Stover is first up. I mean, the tight end they can rely on to block, but maybe he's the guy, if they're going to throw to tight ends, he'll be the guy they throw to, and he can be pretty good at that. And if he's the second-team tight end right now, maybe he expands to a bigger role than I would have expected coming into this spring. So I did want to mention Joe Royer there as well. So, Nathan, I think you can do this for the offensive side of the ball too. Is there a second or third-team guy on either side of the ball that you think could jump up and become a starter this year. Well, and, and just Royer was a guy that I had written down to this when you, especially when you're talking about just what he could be over the course of his career, because when you're even, I know tight end developmental position and all that, but Ohio state's recruiting at that position has been kind of fine. Like they haven't been getting like star power guys. And for Royer, you're always like, okay, well maybe by the time he's like a fifth year player, is he's doing something consistently. And now maybe I think that timetable got sped up a little bit this spring. I don't know that I think he's going to be an all big 10 kind of guy this spring, this season, but you see the timetable maybe speeding up. So the, the second third team question is interesting because like technically 
JT Tuimaloao and Jack Sawyer were second team at, at the spring game. But I think I know more what this person is is trying to get at. And like Jordan Hancock was second team, but I think we all see that as almost like a, you know, a technicality almost that it, it's going to be a rotational thing there. And at worst, he's the first guy subbing into either of those cornerback spots. I mean, Kai Stokes is the one that jumps out at me just because when you're getting a true freshman who comes in at Ohio state ranked outside the top 300 top 350, you're thinking, okay, well it's a, uh, maybe by a couple years in that guy's making an impact on the depth chart. And instead he looks like if he had the start, if something went really wrong and he had the start, he, he could probably hang. And I, that's that's not easy at Ohio State. No, I think that's good. I mean, I do think you. I don't think we yet have to like take away Jordan Hancock as an answer to that question because I do think okay, well, who's starting? Oh, Denzel Burke and Cam Brown. I mean, I think it's okay to throw say okay. Well, I think maybe Jordan Hancock will be one of the first two corners on the field by week five or whatever. I think that's possible. I think probably you gave the best answer. I, everybody loves to talk about true freshmen. Is CJ Hicks going to start this year? Probably not, but I'm going to keep thinking he might. I don't, I don't know. I'll just, well, he, would he start ahead of steel chambers and chip train him? I don't know, but again, it's hard. I do think as much as I, I understand your point about steel chambers and yes, he'll probably lead the linebackers and snaps. Again, I do think there's just a part of me that Ohio State's best linebacker should be better than that. That it just is hard for me that it's nothing personal against Steel Chambers, but it's like, oh, who's your best linebacker? It's like, oh, this guy was kind of a good, solid recruit who played running back for a couple of years. And then he's like, oh, I'll try linebacker. And it's him. And it's like, what about the five-star guy who's been like targeted for this his whole life? What about the guy who's so talented you can't keep him off the field? Shouldn't that be the case? So I've, I'll keep that alive for C.J. Hicks, even though often we end up talking about true freshmen a lot more than they wind up having an impact. Well, this actually segues to another one of the questions, if you don't mind me jumping ahead a little yeah. bit, where somebody asked, are the defensive tackles – the weakest part of this defense still right now. And I would actually still say it's linebacker because I see a upside with Ty Hamilton and Tyleek Williams and Mike Hall that got reemphasized a little bit this, and that's not even including you've got veterans at the top of that room and Teron Vincent and Jerron cage who, who are their own kind of, Zach Harrison ish thing where maybe you haven't seen like amazing things from them, but there's, there's something steady there. Those guys know what they're doing. I don't think you feel like this, this defense is um, corrupted by having to, to play them a lot of snaps or starting snaps. So I, I still, I think defensive tackle is fairly solid. The one that I, I guess I could see somebody from that group is almost certainly going to emerge and be impressive this year. And I don't know if I think that yet still about linebacker, because I think the Hicks thing is still in the distance and the other guys I think could be fine, but I don't know if they're going to be great. I think that's well said. Depth does not equal strength. And just because they're deep at linebacker doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be great at linebacker. And I, I, I think you make a good point. We'll make sure we give that credit to the four one nine. It was, are our defensive tackles the weakest part of the defense? 
So, and will the Michigan game be any different this year if we're not strong enough there? I actually think like playmaking linebackers who can get after running backs would make a big deal in a game like the Michigan game as well. Uh, all right. We'll take our last break. A couple tight end questions when we come back after this on Buckeye Talk. All right. Doug Maurice and Nathan Baird, we invite you to drop reviews at Apple Podcasts. We invite you to read cleveland.com slash OSU, where we continue to put up stories. Nathan is doing draft capsules every day. Garrett Wilson's up there. Chris Olave is up there. We continue to have stuff that we'll be writing. Uh, and of course, we invite you to try the text at 614-350-3315. Two tight end questions that we'll finish with that I'll sort of combine uh, together here, Nathan, because they're kind of like two sides of the coin. From the 949, now that we know that we have tight ends, will they continue to be played or will they be forgotten about as usual? I'm just saying after 60 years of being a Buckeye fan that this is the way of things, and I don't care who the coach or the tight end is. Wager is my name and Buckeye is the same. Bet on it. So it's I like when they ended with a rhyme. So that's a person who's like, whatever. I've been watching for Ohio State for 60 years, I guess, other than Ricky Dudley or John Frank, they didn't throw to a tight end. The other side is this from the 205. The receivers look great, but Joe Royer got a TD and G. Scott made some plays. Do you think there comes a day when Ryan Day will try to develop a Kyle Pitts type of tight end and utilize tight ends like his fellow New Hampshire mafia coach, Dan Mullen? So Dan Mullen is part of the uh, Chip Kelly, Ryan Day, bunch of guys from New Hampshire. Coaching tree, Kyle Pitts, superstar at Florida, number four overall pick in the draft thousand yard season as a rookie last year in the NFL. So one person is saying, eh, give up on tight ends. The other person is saying, will Ryan day ever try to develop a superstar tight end, which do you think is closer to what the truth will turn out to be under Ryan day? Nathan? Well, I mean, to answer the first question, the tight ends are going to play as much as they ever have, but they're not going to throw the ball to them. If that's what you're asking, like they're going to throw the ball to them less in 2022, probably because there is no Jeremy Ruckert at the top of that. There's certainly no combination of Ruckert and Farrell like they had the year, the two years before that. So I'm sorry, tight end targets are probably going to be reduced in 2022. I don't think that's a sign of any problem with the offense. It's because the power of the offense is elsewhere. So they're going to have a very uh, integral role, but not as receivers. Now, the other question, the second question you read is, has always been really intriguing to me because, well, number one, those dudes are super rare. Like Kyle Pitts, Rob Gronkowski, George Kittle, like even in the NFL, it's not like every team has a guy that has those kind of skills at receiver. Um, so you're talking about a handful of dudes at any given time in college football, probably. And now Ohio State typically is a destination for guys like that when you're talking about exclusive talents at almost any position. But it's harder to sell when you're not already featuring the tight end. But Rucker, even though he didn't get the ball a lot here, shows that it's possible to recruit a five-star tight end to Ohio State. So I've always been intrigued by that, that you could you find a could you find that level of tight end and convince him to come to Ohio State and now you've got this big beast to use in your offense because that's always the answer they give us, right? That it's always like, well, if you're throwing the ball to him or if you're putting him on the field, that means you're taking off one of these five-star receivers. Can you get an athlete that forces you to stop saying that, that is so good that you have to line him up? 
again, I, I think it's rare. I don't think it's something they'd be able to do consistently. Is it possible that there's the one guy out there in the next decade that they could find? Maybe. I think it's also interesting to have a conversation about G. Scott's ceiling at some point. Is What's his five-year ceiling? What's, what's G. Scott's fifth-year ceiling if like the best-case scenario unfolds? If they didn't do it with Ruckert, why would we think they'll ever do it? They didn't throw it to him. So uh, now to say, could they develop a Kyle Pitts type? I mean, it depends what you mean by develop. They did not say a top 100 national recruit at tight end who can catch the ball and they did not throw it to him. They will not. My bet is that you will not see a recruit at tight end rated as high as Jeremy Ruckert for the next decade. They're not going to come here. Why would they? I'm not sure Jeremy Ruckert would come here again. I'm not giving any inside secrets. I'm just watching a guy who didn't get the ball. Now, is it going to work out? He's a top 100 player in this draft. It seems like it'll probably work out. He should. He was more talented than his usage at Ohio State. So the idea that, that a, they get a certain kind of player that changes how they use that spot, they had one, and they didn't, they didn't use him. Well, but, I just don't know. I don't know. But because the, the point is they're always going to have the receivers and it's their choice. Yep. It's their choice. And I don't know what would change that philosophy. It's just not what they do. I guess the one thing I'm going to push back on is, yes, Jeremy Ruckert was a top 100 or even like top 50, right? Like prospect. I understand that. That doesn't mean he was the athletic presence of a Kyle Pitts or one of those guys. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that's different. I don't know that he's that guy. I don't know that he's that athlete. And if you could find one of those guys, I could see Ohio state making room in the offense. How would they, but, but how those, would they find him? How would they get him to come here? Why would he come? No, I said that. I said that, that it's a harder sell when you're not already featuring the tight end. Do you think it'll happen? I'm skeptical that it would happen. Now, Kyle Pitts was the number 162 overall recruit in the class of 2018, number five tight end. Right. So Jeremy Rucker was actually ranked a little bit higher from him. So we understand how that works. Right. Some guys. But if you want to get thrown the ball as a tight end, you wouldn't come here. And I do think it's a decision. Again, in the end, tight end, they almost need to change the. The descriptions of some of the positions in football because we're using antiquated language and it doesn't fit anymore. There's the inline tight end versus the slot tight end. It's sort of that big slot. I think Ryan Day likes a quick slot instead of a big slot. Who do you want? As that matchup, do you want Jackson Smith and Jigba or do you want like a six, five guy who's really physical and is a difficult matchup because he's big or do you want a guy who's a difficult matchup because he's quick, short area quickness, great route runner. And I think we know where Ryan Day stands on that, which is great. That's probably the right answer. If you stumble in, if Joe Royer turns into Kyle Pitts, I guess maybe you would change. But at the moment, I'm not sure how they would know that Joe Royer turned into Kyle Pitts because they don't use the tight end. I think that's 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 a fair question. The guy that always sticks in my mind, um, I know people hate when I do this, Purdue had a guy named Dustin Keller. Do you remember Dustin Keller? Yeah. Dustin Keller was a like a state high jump champion. He was a really good basketball player and was a receiver in football. His best offer was from Toledo. He had had committed to Toledo. Purdue at the last second with Joe Tiller comes in and offers him a scholarship. And he goes on and has like this amazing career Purdue and becomes a first round draft pick. So I think it's, it would almost have to happen that way that you find someone who is an athletic freak who can hang in the way that you need a tight end to hang. 
but you're right. That it's the way that Ohio State just thinks about the tight end position may preclude them from finding that guy, even on their own roster, because that's not how they think about that position. But the one guy who maybe is the closest to having a path to that would be G. Scott. If he's if 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 it's a five year development plan now that you're transitioning him towards that position. But again, like that Purdue offense would use a tight end in a very different way than what Ohio State uses its tight end. And the Big Ten has developed tight ends. Iowa's developed tight ends. Noah sure. Fanton, TJ Hawkinson. Wisconsin has developed tight ends. Purdue has developed tight ends. You know what helps them develop tight ends? Because they don't have receivers like Ohio State has. Sure. So you can eat. It's harder to have a great pass catching tight end when you have a bunch of great receivers. And for the foreseeable future, Ohio State's going to have a bunch of great receivers. So I, the record thing has made me any last vestige of believing that this could ever happen, I've given up on. Because I, well, I still cannot believe how little they threw the ball to Jeremy Ruckert last year. Like, no one would be shocked if Jeremy Ruckert, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if Jeremy Ruckert went in and had an NFL career where he had some seasons of like 600, 800 yards and several touchdowns. Is like, I mean, I could see that happening for Jeremy Ruckert. Um, the fact that it didn't happen at Ohio State doesn't necessarily pre- preclude him from doing it. But what is interesting about, again, like I was talking about with Joe Royer, now, like, they're not recruiting tight ends that anywhere near where J- Jeremy Ruckert was ranked. I know and, because they and, didn't throw the ball to Jeremy Ruckert for four years. Right, and everybody right, said, right. I'm not going there. Right. But as you also pointed out, the Kyle Pitts thing happened without him being highly ranked. So it, I, I think it's almost something that they would have to luck into. And but then even if they did, would they, would they know that they had him? Would he get utilized enough? I don't know. I think not. I also wonder if they had, a guy that size who's a great athlete. We have this 6'4. Because all the tight ends at the NFL draft are 6'4, 250. We got this great athlete. We kind of stumbled into him. He was a little like a Dewan Jones kind of guy, like a diamond in the rough. He yeah, just yeah, that's a good didn't example. quite fit. I'm not so sure they wouldn't turn him into a defensive end. Mm, because that's yeah. it's where can you use? You've got like a 6'4, 250 pound guy who's like super athletic. He's explosive. He's got great quickness. He's got a lot of power. And we just, we didn't kind of fell through the cracks a little bit. He was a great shot. Barry. Yeah. He's a great handball player. (laughs) Right. That's where I, that's what I, you know who I think might've been like an NFL tight end, Sam Hubbard. They moved Sam Hubbard all over the place. Joe Tiller might have turned him into a tight end. They turned him into a defensive end. Guess what? He's a third-round pick. He plays for a Super Bowl team. It it's, was the right decision, but I just don't even know that they would allow it. <laughs> I don't even know that it – I just don't think the structure's in place for a Kyle, for a Kyle Pitts to flourish. Because, frankly, if, so Kyle Pitts comes in. He's the number 162 overall player in the country. If he starts showing in practice how awesome he is, Kyle Pitts might transfer from Ohio State because he's like, I don't get the ball here because they're busy throwing it to the first round receivers. I have to go get the ball. And I think that that would be more likely than the offense changing and then being like, yeah, let's throw the ball. The tight, the tight ends can have 70 catches. I just don't. And I'm not saying that's well, wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I just think you have to give up the dream. And, and I think a lot of this also is, is academic, kind of what you're saying, because, okay, you can have Kyle Pitts. You know how many playoff games Kyle Pitts played in, in his career? Like zero. No, absolutely. <laughs> and, and and so did all those Iowa tight ends. And, you know, Jeremy Rucker got to play in what at least three. So. Yeah. 
No, I, I completely agree. His last game, Kyle, uh, Kyle Pitts, his last season at 2020 in Florida, Kyle Pitts played in eight games. He had 43 catches for 770 yards. So he averaged like 95 yards receiving per game as a tight end. He had 12 touchdowns in eight games. You know what's actually a good example, I guess, is probably Ricky Dudley at Ohio yep. State, who the football program kind of stumbles into. And then look what happens, and he becomes a first-round draft pick. If if there was a guy, if, if you know, E.J. Liddell was like, could I try tight end? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And then it was like, oh, my, what is this? I don't know. Listen, great coaches take advantage of great talent, and you adjust to your personnel. Every great coach adjusts to the personnel. I'm not saying that Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson wouldn't do that. I'm saying – the way they play, it is unlikely to me that they will get that kind of personnel. If you absolutely stumble in to a first-round talent at tight end, what would they do? I guess maybe, except they didn't do it with Jeremy Rucker, who maybe wasn't a first-round talent at tight end, but he's going to be a top 100 pick in the NFL draft who had like 14 catches last year. It's ridiculous. The one thing that... I could see is if you had a guy like that, even a Kyle Pitts in the Ohio state offense, no, he would not get the ball up and down the field as much. I think I still think they would find more of a way to utilize him in the red zone as a goal line situational as a target there. Like that's the one thing because as much as Ryan day, we've talked so much about his, the NFL influence on how he approaches things. And that's clearly part of the NFL game is using those guys in that situation. A guy who you can just like throw a ball high in the back of the end zone and he jumps up and catches it. And I know that Jeremy Rucker did that at times in his career, sometimes not by design because he was making a great play on the ball. But if you had a guy who had that kind of athletic ability that you would, I could see them utilizing him more in those situations than they would just up and down the field as part of the offense. So Jeremy Rucker, the consensus mock draft database right now has him as the third tight end behind Trey McBride and Greg Dulcich. I think Kelly goes between third and fifth. I think probably McBride and Dulcich are the top two. I think Jelani Woods from Virginia. I just wrote a whole tight end thing about the Browns should take a tight end. A lot of people think Rucker to the Browns at 78 would make sense. Um, I think if he goes as a, between the third and fifth tight end drafted. In the Big Ten, just the Big Ten last year, Nathan, where do you guess Jeremy Ruckert ranked among Big Ten tight ends in receiving yards per game? Receiving yards per game? Receiving um, yards per game for Big Ten tight ends. 12th? Ninth. So so he's going to be like the fourth tight end picked, and he was ninth in his conference in receiving yards at his position. So I'm not – I'm just saying the same thing I've been saying, but Kyle Pitts? Are you – I just – whatever. It's fine. Again, but enjoy your enjoy your national championship trophy, Ohio State, while not throwing to the tight end. <laughs> Hope your rings feel good on your fingers while you're not throwing to the tight end. Hope Ryan Day becomes a legendary Hall of Fame coach without throwing to the tight end. Hope, hey, C.J. Stroud, how's your Heisman Trophy? Hope it feels good without throwing to the... Well, it's, yeah, I mentioned this at the very, the very first question was like, if you're listing questions for this offense right now, tight end would be one of them, but does it feel like the thing that would hold Ohio state back, especially the tight ends as receivers is not the thing that's going to hold Ohio state back. You're not going to get to the end of the year and say like, boy, what would Ohio state season have been if they had just thrown to Cade Stover more? Or I think a correlator of that, the few times that they did throw to those guys, if they didn't 
drop the ball or whatever. Because I don't think that's a problem either. I think that's all. It's just a, almost a non-entity with this offense. It's all the, about blocking. The thing with tight end was, were they going to have a competent, functional football player to put on the field? So they because they want a tight end on the field, and will they have two of them who are competent, functional football players? So they can go twelve personnel a little bit. That was the question. It really is not a usage question. It is a competence question just to line up the way they want to line up so they can throw it to everybody else or hand off. And I, I think they're getting there, right? I mean, I think moving Cade Stover back, the way Jewel Royer showed up this spring, makes you think yes. And it's not about usage. It's about just can you be on the field? And back to the question about do your job and do your job. And at Ohio State, as you just said, the do your job part of being a tight end is 90% blocking, 10% pass catching. And that's just the way it is. All right. That'll wrap up this rapid fire Monday next week. We'll kick off with the madness. We are going to do a draft of how we think the 2023 draft might go, Nathan. And I think we did this last year. I think before the 2021 draft, we did a pod about how we think the 2022 draft might go. I think so. We will go back and double check that and okay. see what we said. Cause I, I think we did. So that's the whole point of doing this stuff ahead. So you can go back a year later and be like, Oh, that was awful. Buckeye talk. <laughs> so um, again, so the drafts next week, the drafts next Thursday, we're going to next week when it is draft time, we'll do a draft off the first round. We'll do a draft off day two on Friday, which is rounds two and three. Will we get that podcast up that night? I don't know. We'll do our best. It might be the next morning, but we'll have a wrap for you to see what we think of where Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson and Nicholas Petit Frere and Jeremy Ruckert and where do all these guys wind up going? So we'll have drafts, react, uh, pods reacting to the draft. We'll do a little more getting you ready for the draft next week. And then we've got a whole bunch of stuff coming after that. Thanks to you guys for listening. For Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>